0: In the book of Revelation, the last uh, book in our Christian scriptures, um, we get all sorts of visions about what God's desire is for humanity. And let's be honest, the book is a little bizarre in some places. You know, many people read it and scratch their heads and go, what, what am I supposed to make of this? Uh, but some of the images aren't hard to understand at all, and one of them that I think is just the most beautiful and compelling images in the book is this it it describes sort of the heavenly gathering of all God's people the way God desires it to be and it says that there are people gathered from every tribe every tongue and every nation worshiping God before his throne the way that the covenant church has um, kind of described this picture of God's desire for his people is we call it the multi-ethnic mosaic of God's kingdom. God's desire, the direction that God is trying to bring all of history, is that people who speak different languages, who have different uh, uh, cultural backgrounds, who have different skin colors, who have all sorts of the difference we see in this world, are united as worshipers before God's throne. So we're starting today a new sermon series. It's going to go four weeks, and the sermon series is called Mosaic. And here's what we're going to talk about. If that's the picture of what God desires for his people, how come we don't always see that in our world today? If God's desire is for the difference of cultural diversity to be a a point of celebration, how come sometimes, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, sometimes cultural differences, racial and ethnic differences, don't cause unity, they cause division? How come? we so often and in different times and places fail to be what God calls us to be. Now, I was emailing with somebody um, a couple weeks ago about the fact that I was gonna uh, do a sermon series on race and the church in America. And they were saying, you know, Carl, that's, um, I don't know if you know this, but that can be kind of a divisive topic. And I emailed back, I said, yes, I actually, uh, I'd heard about that from somebody, they told me. But then they said something really interesting to me. This is a longtime member of the church. Uh, I don't necessarily know what their thoughts are on this, but they said, here's the thing, Carl. We know it's an important topic. And, you know, Carl, you might say things that might offend me, but if you do, I'm a big boy. I can handle it. And I said, thank you. I appreciate that. So as my former uh, mentor and boss in China, uh, Amy Young, used to say, uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put on our big boy and our big girl pants. And we're going to talk about some hard stuff for the next few weeks. Uh, Why? Because it's hard stuff. And because it's real and happening in our country. And if we can't talk about it in here, what hope do we have to be a church that makes a difference out there? Amen? Anybody with me? So if I offend you or if I don't offend you, I'm sorry, but here we go. Um, Today's just, we're just going to, I'm just going to try to like Dip my toe into the water of this topic today. We're just getting started. We come back next week. We're gonna we're gonna dive off the deep end. Um, but I ask myself, I always ask myself, how do you you know how do you, where, how do you start? How do you get into a topic like this? And uh, my answer to that question is almost always with a story. So I'm in, I think I'm in college. It's either late high school or college, and I'm traveling to Mexico City to visit my four friends, Danny. Andreas, Raul, and Rodri. Um, They live in Mexico, and they're friends of mine because we've worked together at a summer camp for many, many years. But I'm going to go visit them in Mexico. Now, some of you know this. I grew up in northern Minnesota. Grand Rapids, Minnesota, is not a culturally diverse place to grow up. Shocking. So I land in... Mexico City, and right away, the guys are like, all right, Carl, we're going to a club tonight. And I immediately, I'm like, my Baptist pastor probably shouldn't find out that I'm going to a club. This can't be something Christians do, right? But we go to the club. Music is insanely loud. I can't, I couldn't carry on a conversation if I wanted, but all the more trying to do it in broken Spanish. And, you know, they're all kind to me, and they speak English pretty well. But then on top of the fact that I'm at a club in Mexico City, the, the girls that are friends of my friends, when, when I'm introduced to them, they kiss me on the cheeks. And I'm like, I'm going to have to go to confession when I get home. Because, you know, we don't do this in Grand Rapids. Well, we leave the club. It's late. And we're going home. And the guys are all like, all right, Carl, you know, we're hungry. We're going to stop for tacos. And I'm like, yes. All right. I can. We do tacos in Grand Rapids. So we, we pull off to this little, we'll call, let's call it a taco stand. But by taco stand, I mean this like rickety wooden stairwell that had like a plank attached to it with a little sort of metal cooking surface underneath it. And taco stand owner is receiving the money and putting it in his pocket and wiping his nose and making my tacos all without missing a beat. And the guys say, Carl, you're going to love these. They're going to be the best tacos you ever had. And they were good. Later, they would tell me, Carl, usually when we eat at places like that, we get sick. We can't believe you didn't get sick. <laughs> Thanks for telling me that, guys. <laughs> Worth it. It was good. So we're sitting there at this you know, little plastic table with little plastic chairs, side of a road, um, I, I'm, I'm having all sorts of, 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 like new, strange, different, confusing experiences, but hey, I'm in Mexico City with some buddies and it's great. And we're just chatting and hanging out now. It's quiet so we can talk to one another. And suddenly we're, we're just in the middle of, of, eating our tacos. And suddenly like the mood around the table shifts dramatically and everybody gets like a little tense and I don't know why, but then they all go, all right, Hey, Carl, time to go. And I was like, well, I got to finish my tacos, you know? it's was like, nope, we got to go right now. And I look around, and I'm thinking to myself, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm out of place. I, I stick out like a sore thumb. I don't really, but but this is particularly strange. I think to myself a question that I bet a lot of us who have been in different cross-cultural circumstances have asked ourselves before. I think to myself, am I missing something? Did something just happen that I'm not aware of because, I mean, I know I'm missing a lot of things, but like this really weird shift in, in the atmosphere just happened. Well, we get home and um, go to bed, get up the next morning, and the guys are all like having these conversations with their parents in, in rapid Spanish, which to me, it all felt rapid. But I could tell they were talking about something, and finally I'm like, guys, what, like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, here's the thing, Carl, um, you know, I didn't quite say it this way, but their families, in terms of Mexico City, were, were pretty well-off families. And all these guys, when they traveled with their parents, they always traveled with security guards. But when we'd gone out, they didn't have their security detail with them. And it turns out that as we were sitting there at the table, me and these wealthy Mexican kids... Another group of people had come and sat at the table next to us, but that table was behind me, so I was looking this direction, and these guys were looking behind me, and the people who sat down were, as my friends said, were from a different part of the city, and they didn't really appreciate these wealthy boys on their part of town, and so apparently to communicate that, the people behind me had pulled a handgun out and laid it on the table, yeah, I missed that part. That obviously is what caused a bit of a change in the atmosphere at the table at the time. Now, maybe you've, maybe you've never had... Um, that dramatic of of a cross-cultural and uncomfortable experience, but I think we can summarize. I share that whole story to to say, as we think about what it means to be God's people and God desires us to be a multi-ethnic mosaic, as we think about the fact that when you cross cultures, you often find yourselves confused, misunderstanding things, you're going through all the processes of working that out, and while sometimes cultural difference is a wonderful, beautiful thing that we enjoy. Americans spend billions of dollars every year crossing cultures for the joy of that different experience. Sometimes that difference can be challenging. It can even cause conflict or disruption. Here's my really, really profound summary. Uh, Crossing cultural borders is complicated, right? There's different language. There's different norms and assumptions. There's different music. There's different ways that people go about living their lives, and I'm sure many of us in this room have experienced both all the joys and all the challenges of that. And then, of course, we have to acknowledge something. Sure, for me, um, northern Minnesota, super sheltered life. This was one of the very first times I'd ever gone to another culture. Um, The significance of traveling internationally really left an impression on me. I felt the weight of that complexity. But the fact is, the world that we live in is more and more such that you don't have to cross national borders in order to cross cultural borders. You can cross cultural borders just walking a couple blocks down the street or driving to the neighborhood or the city next door. I pulled up a chart. It was... It, it's, the numbers are too small, but you can look it up on your own because it's all just on the website. Um, uh, but you'll kind of get the point. It's, uh, it, it outlines the um, racial and ethnic um, population of America from about the 1980s until the 20, uh, until 2020. And the picture it paints is basically one of the population of, as, this, as the Census Bureau identifies it, of black people... Uh, American Indians, uh, Eskimo, uh, Asian Pacific Islanders, um, Hispanic or non-Hispanic white people, the populations of those groups in America has been growing steadily. And the population of ethnically white people in America has been growing as well, but at a slower rate. So that the point being, we live in an increasingly ethnically diverse country. We live in a country where it's easier and easier to cross cultural borders without having to travel very far from our homes. Now, I found myself this past couple of weeks doing all sorts of um, reading, research, trying to wrap my head around this. Uh, I mentioned, and and I would encourage you again, our denomination has all sorts of resources on the topic of race and the church and uh, the multi-ethnic world we live in. Um, I linked a bunch in the All Church email. encourage you to to check that out. But one of the stats that jumped out at me was really interesting. Uh, It was a poll from just just a couple years ago. And it said, as Americans look at our increasing diversity around us, how do we feel about that? Do we think it's a good thing? Do we think it's a bad thing? Um, And it turns out 76% of Americans believe ethnic diversity is good for our country. That was echoed in workplace surveys. That was echoed in various sort of school or neighborhood surveys. The vast majority of Americans find that they think it's a good thing, something to be celebrated and embraced, that we live uh, with greater ethnic diversity around us. However, if the majority of people think it's a good thing I find myself then scratching my head when I read the headlines or read the articles, which I'm sure many of you have read as well, headlines that say things like, uh, Gallup, uh, ratings of white-black relations hit a new low. Well, it's a good thing, but, but various surveys say that it's going poorly. Or I read an article from The Economist. It said, um, despite the gains... In legal and political rights made by African-Americans since the Civil Rights era, measures of relative poverty and black-white segregation have barely moved for half a century. And of course, this is just two ideas from one of the many aspects of racial and ethnic diversity, and um, you've seen many other uh, articles numbers, statistics that could identify the fact that if we all think it's good, it seems like there's still some serious challenges in our midst. But then, and here's the thing that I'll be honest is really, really weighs on me, Uh, then we take the fact that there's some gap between what Americans by and large think is good and the reality we appear to see around us, and then it turns out that even though we all have access to the same information, we all can see, kinda, we, we all have, I mean, we live in an information age where we can look around and kind of gather whatever we want, it seems like we actually disagree, both as a country and as a church, about whether or not racial difference and problems of races, racism is actually a problem. Here's, here's one uh, headline that I read uh, from an article just posted uh, earlier this year. American society is decidedly not racist. America is one of the most racially tolerant countries on earth. So here's my starting point for this sermon series. Um, God's image is that diversity would be a celebrated strength among his people. It appears that the American public, by and large, thinks diversity is a good thing that we should celebrate. However, for many, they look out and say, even though a lot of people think it's good, it's clearly a challenge. But if God's people, according to God's word, should be pursuing the good of diversity for its own sake, we ourselves seem to be radically divided about what we should do about this. What we should do politically, what we should do in our own neighborhoods, in our own schools, and what we should do in our own churches. When I think about just how divisive of a topic this is, just how um, angry I see and hear and read Christians getting, um, I find myself thinking, much like I thought sitting at that table in Mexico City, I find myself thinking, what's going on here? What am I missing? I want to do two things this morning. I want to start this series by identifying um, two factors that I believe uh, contribute to this confusion and different points of view on the topic of race and the church in America. I want to talk about two factors. And then after that, uh, I want to read, or rather sort of summarize a story from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. If you want to turn there now, we'll get there in a bit, but it's the story of Jesus and his conversation with the Samaritan woman uh, at the well. And through it all, here's the invitation I'm going to make, both today and in the week ahead. The invitation is this. Um, I'm not, not going to solve the problems or answer all the questions. If I had the sermon that I could preach where all of us were like, oh, we all agree now. We figured it out. Problem if I had that sermon, I would preach it. And if you have that sermon, give it to me and I'll consider preaching it. But to date, I don't have that sermon. Um, but what I am going to do is I'm going to talk about it and I'm going to ask some questions I'm going to make some observations that, to me, seem relevant. And through it all, I'm going to give this invitation over and over and over. What we must unequivocally be committed to as God's people is taking what we see in the world around us and submitting ourselves not to some source of information, to some political ideology, to some particular point of view, to some suggested solution to the problem. Submitting ourselves not to any of that, but submitting ourselves first and foremost, far above everything else, to God's word, which must be the foundation of all that we do with our lives and with our faith. So what's going on here? I've got two observations. They're probably not going to be new to you, but I think they're worth highlighting. Uh, First of all, we live in an information-saturated world. Anybody here um, find yourself recently going, you know what I need? I need access to more information because I just don't have enough of it. There's just none available, nothing to read, nothing to watch, no. And what that means is we all gather information. We read it, we watch it, we hear it from different sources. And you've probably seen something like this, but turns out people who present information... Or maybe we could just say, people are biased in the way they present information, and there's all sorts of ways that people try to rank and evaluate the bias, particularly of different news sources. Um, this is one of the many. It's a it's an organization called Ad Fontes Media, and they try to create a system that evaluates the bias, the conservative leaning bias, the liberal leaning bias. Um, the hopefully more objective and neutral presentation of facts. Now, even this organization gets criticized for being biased in their evaluation of the bias of different media sources. But the point being, and we've all seen it, one of our challenges is that we can't seem to agree on what is or isn't a fact or fiction, on what is or isn't a reliable or an unreliable source of news or media or information. What's going on here? It's not just that we don't agree on big topics like race, it's that we can't even agree on the information that should contribute to our understanding in the first place. But it gets more complicated than that because I've been been following a little bit um, this guy whose research is fascinating. Uh, His name is Timothy Dalrymple, great last name, just great, uh, he's currently uh, the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today magazine. Um, actually, you know, CT as a whole, the whole organization. But his academic research, before getting into publishing, focused on one question. How do people form beliefs? All sorts of beliefs. Political beliefs, religious beliefs, um, sort of ethical, moral, or relational beliefs. How do people do it? And particularly. He's not so much interested in how people say they form beliefs because everybody says they form beliefs in the same way. I just get all the information and then I rationally evaluate it and then I make my decision and come to my belief. That's what we all do, right? Simple. He's interested in how people actually form their beliefs. This is fascinating. If you research it, you can find this stuff. But here's his conclusion is that that whole process happens with two foundational um, kind of underlying assessments going on in each of our hearts and minds. And here's the image that he created. He said, we form our beliefs based on two different curves, the information curve and the plausibility curve. Let me explain. You take, a, you take any potential belief. Um, for example, uh, Race or racism is still a problem in America today. That's a proposed belief. And the first thing that everybody does is internally evaluates how plausible or implausible we think that belief might be. If we rank it as implausible, way out on the edge of the curve, then, then Dalrymple's findings suggest no matter how much good, reliable information we hear about that belief, we're much more likely to ignore the information because we believe it to be implausible in the first place. If, however, we find something to be plausible at the bottom of that blue bucket, then in fact, we actually don't need much information. We're predisposed to believe it in the first place. And then it gets more complicated because what we needed is more complexity because we were just thinking, oh, this is just so peaceful and relaxing. No, it gets more complicated because then the second thing we do is we look at all the sources of information and we evaluate those based on the reliability. If I get a piece of information, even if it's verifiably accurate information, but if I get it from a source that I consider untrustworthy, I'm much more likely to disregard that information. And if I get another piece from a source I believe to be trustworthy, even if in fact it's not, I am more inclined to believe it and form my beliefs based on it because it's from a source that I trust. <sighs> so, I'm guessing we've um, experienced that. We've seen that. We've had conversations with brothers or uncles or cousins or people in our family, people in our church, people in our community, and we found ourselves thinking, are we speaking different languages here? Like, how, how is it that we're so, um, on such different pages? Uh, I've, I've had a handful of conversations, even in the past few months, with church members saying, you know what, what we got to be able to do is we got to be able to sit down and talk about stuff, but I find it challenging because if all of this is true, then what the conversation turns into is just like literally, point by point, having to go, okay, Is this a true piece of information? Where do we get it from? What are the biases behind it? And it can feel overwhelming. So with that as the background, um, and with the acknowledgement that I'm not going to solve all the problems or answer all the questions, here's what I am going to do. I'm going to invite us to shift our perspective, both now and hopefully on an ongoing basis, so that as we look at this bafflingly complex world and this heavy, complicated question, we look at it more and more. We can say with honesty, we look at it more and more with the eyes of our God, from whom is the source of all truth, and through whom we should seek to answer all of these challenging questions in our world today. Does that sound fair? Okay. Um, so, scripture number one. Uh, we're, gonna do, we're just going to dive into one scripture each of the next four Sundays. And we're going to hope and pray that God would change our hearts more and more to be aligned with his. Uh, Jesus is traveling. Jesus traveled a lot in his ministry. Um, you can get a lot of different maps um, uh, that describe uh, the land of Israel in which Jesus um, did his, you know, lived and had his ministry. Um, but you can see there's kind of five regions. In the south, Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. Up in the north, Galilee. And in John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling from Judea up to Galilee. In between the two of them is Samaria, and you may or may not know that the Jewish people and the Samaritan people had a long history of very conflicted relationships. These were people from two different cultural backgrounds who had a long history of conflict in their relationship. Huh, interesting. Then over on the east, we've got the Decapolis, and we've got Perea. So Jesus is traveling from Judea, up to Galilee, and right off the bat, in chapter 4, verse 4, we get this kind of eye-catching piece of information. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. Wait a minute. He had to go through Samaria? That road was a a valid road, and it was, in fact, the fastest road, about 70 miles, maybe a two- to three-day journey to get from Jerusalem up to Galilee, but Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. A, there were other roads. He could have taken other roads. B, there is some tradition of Jewish rabbis like Jesus intentionally avoiding Samaria. Therefore, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. He chose to. What's this, what's this little statement trying to point us to? Well, it points us to what becomes abundantly obvious just a couple verses later. See, Jesus continues on his travel, and as he's in Samaria, he comes to a town, and his disciples are hungry. It's noon. It's hot. They're like, Jesus, we got to pull over for a Chick-fil-A. I think there's a drive through here. Come on. So Jesus says, that's fine. I'm going to stay at the well, because I'm thirsty. I'm going to get a water. You guys go into town. Get your drive through Meet me back out here. Well, Jesus... If it's somewhat surprising that he goes through Samaria to begin with, he does the thing that is even more baffling. He strikes up a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And he says to her, excuse me, ma'am, I see you're at the well. I see you're drawing some water. Would you give me a drink of water? And the woman, drawing her, her water out of the well, sort of, you can almost picture it, she sort of looks up, startled, and looks around. And she says to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And the author, John, gives us this wonderful little parenthetical explanation when he says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, which is one of the greatest understatements in all of the scripture, because it's not just that they don't associate, these are people who are in great conflict with one another. Well, Jesus is not deterred he had to go to Samaria, presumably, because he had to have this conversation with this woman. And what starts as a conversation about the physical water in the literal well and the quenching of bodily thirst, Jesus turns into a spiritual conversation about spiritual water that quenches the thirst of our soul. And through it all, The woman is a little bit confused because Jesus is talking in all these metaphors and saying somewhat weird and mysterious things, and Jesus does a couple pretty incredible things in the conversation. First of all, he starts by acknowledging to the woman that he happens to know everything there is to know about her very painful and broken past. She's been married five times, whether that's because of some form of her infidelity or some form of... Uh, abuse or taken advantage of her by the men in her community, we don't know. But clearly she has a broken past, and Jesus just names it. It's one of those things where you're like, Jesus, this is like conversation number one. You don't bring these things up. But Jesus brings them up. And the reason he brings them up is to illustrate the fact that he knows that she is thirsty. Not just in her body, but in her soul, she is thirsty. And then Jesus follows up that radical starting point, with a statement that's one of the many statements that would eventually get him killed. He says, I know you're thirsty. I know the brokenness in your past. And I know you're trying to quench your physical thirst with this water, but when you drink this water, you're always going to get thirsty again. But, Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Jesus meets this woman at the level of her thirst, and says, I am the one who can quench the thirst of your soul. The disciples come back, and they see Jesus talking here, and they are, not surprisingly, incredulous. Jesus, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be talking to this woman. Come on, let's get you out of here. Come on, go time. It's time to go. And Jesus, having just had a hard-to-understand conversation with the woman, now has a conversation with the disciples that they similarly simply do not understand. He's trying to say to the disciples that, hey you guys, there's something going on here that you don't know. I had to come here. I had to cross a cultural border to have this conversation because God is doing something in the Samaritan people and now is the time to do it. And Jesus uses these somewhat somewhat of a uh, critical words when he says to the disciples, Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. Disciples are like, I don't see any fields. We're at a well. We just went in and got food. What is the harvest you're talking about? But whatever it is that Jesus was trying to talk about it, to talk about in this conversation, the disciples couldn't see it. Their eyes were shut to the work that God was trying to do in their midst right here. There's an interesting observation around this whole story that um, as the story unfolds, this woman eventually acknowledges her thirst and says, I believe in you, Jesus, the Messiah. And then she ends up going into town and proclaiming this good news to the Samaritan people in the town. And many of the Samaritans come to believe. And commentators ask questions like, well, the disciples were just in town. They didn't seem to have any effective ministry in there. What were they doing? (laughs) Jesus presumably could have gone into town, but he didn't go into town. He stayed and had a conversation with this one woman, which opened the doors for the fruitful ministry to come, and that is the ministry that the disciples simply couldn't see. So here's what we got in this passage. Jesus had to go. He didn't have to go, but he chose to. He crossed a cultural border that was somewhat off limits. He had a cross-cultural conversation. And in that, there's metaphor and there's confusing statements. And through it all, the disciples seem to not understand, but the woman is the one who completely understands. And and we have to kind of ask ourselves, what's the landing point of this whole complicated story? And for me, I think the ultimate point uh, is found in verses 23 and 24, when Jesus is still talking to the woman, And here's what he says God wants for her and for all people. Jesus says, Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshipers must worship in Spirit and in truth. Here's how I would have to summarize the story: um, the woman at the well, and the the author John telling the story are quite preoccupied with the cross-cultural differences and divisions that are front and center in the story. The disciples are so preoccupied that not only is that cross-cultural division foremost in their mind as they get scared when they come back and see Jesus talking, but they're completely unaware of the fact that God's doing a great ministry in their midst. And through it all, here's the invitation that I see from this story. It's so easy for divisiveness and difference and the challenges and complexity of our multicultural world, it's so easy for that to become the focal point of our lives. And maybe appropriately so, let's be honest, there are big challenges like we've already said. But the invitation God gives us is not to let divisive difference be front and center in our eyes and in our minds, but rather for us to hear this invitation... God is seeking worshipers because when we worship God first and foremost, what we will inevitably find is that he brings us together across every imaginable difference and border. He brings us together in worship at the foot of his throne. Which means, as always, at a starting point, for four weeks of exploring race in the church in America, I'm going to invite you to consider what's your move going to be? Like I said, we're just starting now, but I think um, I want to suggest three practices that can really um, be, uh, be consistent throughout all that we're going to talk about. First, uh, it's the starting point of this story was Jesus had to go. And you know what Jesus did? He went. He crossed a border that many would have said should not be crossed. So one of the first things we think about in our diverse world that we live in is that if we want to be like Jesus, we have to be a goer. We have to be someone who sees the barriers and the borders and the differences, and we choose to go there. Not to stay away, not to stay in our comfortable routines and rhythms and little bubbles, but rather to be someone who says precisely where there is complexity and difficulty, that, is where I'm going to go. Second, I think this scripture gives us three different ways to be a prayer as well. First of all, if we want to be like Jesus, and that means being a goer, we need to be people who are regularly, faithfully praying, God, where must I go? For whatever reason, Jesus felt compelled to go into this circumstance. Where is it that God might be calling us to go, even when it's challenging. There's a really interesting um, sort of second part to this as we consider how the disciples didn't have an effective ministry. Jesus could have gone to the town, but didn't. Instead, he spoke to the woman. Um, The whole story wraps up with this kind of landing point. Many of the Samaritans in that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Here's the prayer that strikes me along these lines. Um, if you're like me and you ever felt like, man, Carl, I mean, I get it. I want to go. I want to learn. I want to be open. Um, But sometimes it just feels overwhelming. The story of the Samaritan woman is a bit of a hopeful tale about how God can sometimes use particular people to open doors for new fields of ministry. One commentator called this woman a sower of the seeds of God's kingdom. Maybe the disciples were too blind and had their eyes closed too much to be able to do anything, but this woman was able to open their eyes to see something they couldn't see before. So maybe we pray, God, where must I go? And as I pray that, and as I consider my role, we also pray, God, send sowers to plant kingdom seeds in culturally complicated places what we need to overcome the division and the challenge in our world is the kingdom of God. But of course, that also means we have to pray the challenge that Jesus gave his disciples. We have to be willing to admit, and maybe, just maybe, part of the problem is that my eyes are closed. And so we pray, God, would you open my eyes? eyes. If the disciples who lived and traveled and ministered with Jesus all the time were just as blind as anybody, then how much more so might we be blind to the work God is trying to do in our lives and in our midst? And then, last but not least, hear the invitation that Jesus gave to this Samaritan woman, that he gave to the disciples, that his vision of God's kingdom gives to all of his followers at all times. As you think about your life, who you are, how you live, what you commit yourself to, answer those questions of how you're going to spend your time and your energy and your days. Answer those questions with a posture of worship. Jesus is inviting us to be worshipers because when we fall on our faces before our maker and the maker of all heaven and earth, we can come to find the joy and the excitement and the hope that God's kingdom is a multi-ethnic mosaic. And I hope and I pray that we can do just that. And even if it only means each of us and all of us grows a little bit in this big heavy area, I know it will have been worth it to pursue all the more passionately the worship into which God invites us. Would you pray with me? God, again, we confess, we've only scratched the surface. We've only acknowledged some of the challenges, but there's so much to consider. Um, There's so much weighing heavy. We know we have brothers and sisters in Christ, um, minority peoples in our country who, who are crying out, saying, We're hurting. We don't feel united. There's pain. And then the church is filled with arguments and division and anger about what should be done about it. Help us to humbly acknowledge that we're blind and we need you to open our eyes. Help us to passionately long to see the harvest you're trying to work. And may we do that all from a posture of wholeheartedly worshiping you our God. Amen.